Hi, Westridge. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. We're in this series, as you probably already know, called Strong in the Broken Places. And it's based on the 12 steps. And the idea here is that the 12 steps really is it's, it's actually drawn from stuff in Scripture. It's at the heart of what's known far and wide as the 12 steps is really God and God stuff. And com- contrary to what a lot of people think, the 12 steps are not just for folks who have some obvious addiction, you know, whether it's alcoholism or narcotics. It's not just for that. Uh, because as we've been talking about in this, in this series, we, we, all got, we all got stuff in our life that's bigger than we are. Stuff that's more than we can handle that we can't lick it, so to speak. We can't beat it. And so I'll, I'll just start where uh, Darren has started the last three weeks in a row. Uh, how are you doing with identifying? You know, we, we call them these our Goliaths, these things that are bigger than us. How are you doing with identifying your, your Goliaths, uh, your issues? How are you doing with coming? How am I doing with coming to grips with the idea that I actually have any? And in keeping with the series, just going to give you a list. See if any of these... Uh, ring a bell, alcohol, drugs, either street drugs or prescription drugs, gambling, overworking, overspending, overeating, over-criticizing, over-worrying, over-judgmentalizing, is that a word? It is now. Codependency, sexual promiscuity, porn, playing the victim, jealousy, rage, dishonesty, deceit, people-pleasing. Can you find an issue in the list? Because if you can't, chances are you have a bigger issue, as we've said. It's called denial. Because really, there's, there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's, there's people who are broken, and there's people who are in denial about their brokenness. That's it. All my favorite people are broken, whether they know it or not. And, and the goal of this series, especially if you're here for the first time, is not to you know, get in anybody's face, shame anybody, guilt anybody, put anybody down. Just the opposite. This is about our firm belief that, that God is a God who wants to bring us up out of the stuff that, that holds us back and tears us down. The stuff that gets in the way from us having the kind of life that we were meant to have. So here's a quick recap of the last three weeks and the steps. We've gone through the the first five steps, the 12 steps so far. Uh, Week one, we just called broken. And step one is we admit we're powerless. We admit there's Goliath, stuff that we can't whip. There's stuff, there's issues, and they've become unmanageable. Life might be going okay overall, but there's stuff that's out of control in my life. We've all got them. Broken places that are bigger than we are. And then step two is, if step one feels sort of like not, not so great news, step two is, man, it's great news that there is somebody. There is one who is greater than I am who can restore me to sanity. And again, this is not saying, oh, you have to admit you're crazy. No, no, no. We all know the practical definition of insanity, right? It's doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And you say for you, but I slide to all the time, man. There's stuff like going, I've been doing that way all my life. It never works. 
I'll let that stop me because I'm just going to keep doing it's just it's just what I do and so it's it's helping me to get out of those things these things that are unproductive and unhealthy and dysfunctional and messing it up and and so that was uh the first week was all all about broken and hope and then the second week we talked about control and that's third step which is make a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God we under as we understand him step three kind of brings step one and two together you can kind of sum up step one two and three this way step one is I can't step two is God can step three is I think I'll let him I think I'll let him I'm going to give God control of my life I'm going to uh, let God do for me what I can't do for myself. So that was talking about control. Then, then last weekend we talked about authenticity, which was step four and five. Step four, it's not just like, oh, that's all you got to do is, you know, admit you're powerless and need God and turn over to him. Everything's fine. Now, step four, we start doing some work. Authenticity, making a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And then admitting to God, to ourselves and to one other human being. Not the dog, not the cat. I like dogs, don't like cats. But, you know, my dog, she understands me, but I don't, I don't think she would really quite get when I would try to tell her the exact nature. Think about that, the exact nature of wrongs. That's, that's pretty, that's getting real, real with ourselves and with God and, and, and another person about the stuff that's bigger than we are. Because we all got it. We all got it, or we just don't know we got it, or we're trying to tell yourself we don't got it. And today is kind of a major turn in the series. To, today we're talking about, what do I do? When I've done those first five things, what, what do I do next? How do I change? Today is all about change. And so I want to look at a story from the Bible that for me, as working on this, on this talk that, that, that I'm sharing with you this morning, this, this story is one I've heard all my life, but I, it's kind of, it kind of went 3D on me for this one, and I hope it will for you too. This, see, see, we aren't meant to just kind of hear stuff, hear these stories, especially about Jesus. It, I think we're meant to enter into it. You know how you be watching a movie, and you like watch it, and it's good, but other times you're like into it, and it's like going, ooh, and it's like when the movie's over, it's like, oh, what do I do now? Because I was, I was, you're not just into it like, oh, I'm into that, but like you, you enter into uh, stories, and this is one we can enter into. So, so here we go. John chapter 5. Uh, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So Jesus goes up to the capital city of his country, which is Jerusalem, for one of the many religious festivals. People would flock from all over the country to, to go to this. I and mean, there's lots of people around. It's like Woodfield Mall at Christmas. And it says that, that, that the, it was near a particular entrance to Jerusalem called the Sheep Gate. Now archaeologists go, we can't really identify where the Sheep Gate was or what the Sheep Gate was. I'm saying I don't need to worry about it if I'm not a sheep. It's just my, that's my informed thing. But there's, so there's this entrance called the Sheep Gate that we're not sure what that was. And, but there was this pool called Bethesda. And Bethesda in, in Hebrew means, Beth is the word for house. It means house of mercy. And this pool at Bethesda was a big deal in those days because under certain circumstances that we'll talk about in just a minute, the waters of this pool were believed to have healing powers. Could heal you of anything. And so tons of, of disabled folks 
And chronically ill folks used to hang out around this pool. That's why it had these five covered colonnades. Again, it may just seem like biblical, blah, blah, blah. But the point is, a covered colonnade. Well, how many of y'all have been to the Dells? Okay. Now, come on now. Who's not been to the Dells? If you haven't, honestly, okay, one... Okay, there's two. Uh, thank you. But, you know, you know, at, at some of the places, the Dells, they'll have like a cabana you can rent that's like right near the water slides or right near the wave pool. And, you know, that's a, like a, a, a nice place where you can get in from the sun and there's like a little fridge in there and you can chill and there's going to be a mister or something. And, it's, and you, can, you can really enjoy the water if you, if you happen to rent a cabana. These colonnades were kind of like cabanas, you know, insert Barry Manlow reference here. I don't think they were the Copa Cabana, but they were were these cabanas. And it was a place, they were were sort of like little apartments where people who were chronically ill could, some suggest that they even lived there. It was a place to to just kind of, you get out of the sun, but still be near the water so you could get healed. And so that's what's going on here. Story keeps going on, John 5, verse 5. And then it says one, and it just means a guy, a dude, a person, one was there uh, who had been an invalid. The one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, we don't know if he was 38 years old and he was born with whatever his uh, thing was. Biblical scholars say he was probably paralyzed, perhaps a, a paraplegic or a quadriplegic. Uh, not sure, but uh, that's the implication is that he, he couldn't move, as we'll see. And so maybe he's 38 years old and had this all his life. Maybe, maybe, some, maybe he's older like me and had something happen and he's been that way since he was six or eight or 12 or something. We, we don't know. But the point is that this guy has a crippling problem of some kind, some kind of paralysis apparently. And he's been at the implications. This is not his first time at the pool of Bethesda. This is, for all we know, he may have lived in one of those cabanas. Okay. So that's the setting of the story. So then here comes Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time. Now, we don't know how Jesus learned that. Perhaps he just kind of knew clairvoyantly through his magic Jesus powers. He might. I mean, he clearly had some powers, man. Like, he could know stuff about people that was amazing. Or maybe, maybe somebody said, hey, that guy over there, man, he's, everybody knows him. He's been here for, 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 for 38 years. I mean, for all we know, this guy might have been like, uh, Norm Peterson on Cheers, right? He walks in and, 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 and he walks in and what, what's the entire bar say when he walks in? Norm. And he, he's, you know, afternoon, hey everybody, maybe this guy was kind of like Norm. Maybe this guy was Norm. Was not, his name was Norm. I, I, I don't know. But Jesus knows that this deal, he's not just in a, in a real rough way to where he can't move and he's paralyzed somehow. But he knows that this is, this guy's been this way and been here for a long, long time. And Jesus uh, asks him, do you want to be healed? Now again, enter into the story. If you've been lying someplace for 38 years paralyzed and somebody walked up to you, and, and, the, and the point of the place you're laying is to get healed. That's what this pool of Bethesda is supposed to be able to do. And somebody says, do you want to be healed? I mean, no offense to Jesus here, but you might think that's kind of a stupid question. You know, people ask stupid questions. Uh, I, I moved not too long ago from, from Chicago to Knoxville, Tennessee, and I, I was packing up uh, boxes and had a U-Haul van sitting in the, in the driveway. Had a neighbor walk up and said, hey, you moving? I'm like going, 
No, I just put all my stuff in boxes once a week or twice just to see how many it'll take. You know? Or anybody like the comedian Bill Engvall? He, he does this thing, the here's your sign. You know, he's, he, he's, he says one time he, he had a flat tire in some place in Texas and he pulled into a, into a service station, the gas station attendant said, got a flat tire? And he said, and he said nope. Uh, just driving around the heath. The other three swelled up on me. <laughs> he swears that the guy said, well, they'll do that. Uh, is, here's your sign. I, I, I don't know what this guy's reaction. It, it might seem like a, maybe a kind of an obtuse, not very sensitive question to ask a guy that's been in this state for 38 years. Do you want to be healed? It's like, nope. I really enjoy quadriplegia. Thank you very much. No. I mean, really, what's, what's going on? Why does Jesus ask this question? And at first it might seem like a dumb question, but, but notice this. This is so fascinating. Here's the very thing the guy says back to Jesus when Jesus says, do you want to be healed? Look what he says. He says, sir, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Now, here's the background here. There was, a, there was a, a, a legend that may have been reality or not. We don't know. But there was at least a legend that at certain times, uh, an angel would come and stir up the waters and make them bubble. And you could tell they were bubbling, not because of wind or because somebody, you know, threw something in the water. It was sort of like Artesia, just sort of bubbling up. And the legend was that when it bubbled up, first one in the water gets healed. Just the first one. Nobody else. Just the first one. So it's like kind of the last, it's the opposite of, you know, last one in is a rotten egg. <laughs> this is, first one in is the only one who's not a rotten egg. The rest of y'all are stuck being rotten eggs. First one in. And, and, it, and so this guy, notice he doesn't say yes or no to whether he wants to be healed. He says, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. Well, I can't move. I got nobody. I, I'm stuck. I can't do anything about this. I'm trying to get in. Someone else gets down ahead of me. So I'm kind of stuck here as a rotten egg. And, and maybe it was as simple as that. Maybe it was irrelevant whether he wanted to get healed or not. But maybe something else was going on. Uh, maybe in a way he'd become comfortable in his brokenness. Now, when I say comfortable, I don't mean he liked it or enjoyed it or was happy. Uh, I live in a neighborhood that's uh, real mixed socioeconomically. Uh, a lot of people who are on disability and government aid and, and uh, the so-called working poor. And a buddy of mine, he's in his 40s. He had a stroke more than 20 years ago, which is, man, it's wild that he had a stroke at such a young age. But he's been on disability ever since. And he only gets like a thousand, he said like a thousand bucks a month is what it's up to after all these years. And that's what he has to live on. He lives in this little two bedroom, about 1,000 square foot house across the street from me. One one of the houses across the street from me. And uh, to make ends meet, he rents out one of the bedrooms to another guy. And then he, he rents out the couch to another guy. And then he rents out the laundry room to another guy. So it's a two-bedroom house. He's got one guy living on the couch and another guy living in the other bedroom and another guy living in the laundry room. And he and I become friends. I like him a lot. He's a really good guy and he's good to me and we try to help each other out. And when I got to know him well enough, I said, I said what, what do you do all day, man? Because he, he's, he's, he, he's got a para- some paralysis on his right side and his arm is twisted and he can't use it. And he can walk, but he can't walk at a very far or at a, at a, at a, at a normal gait or speed. And and, and he's just real blunt. He goes, drink? And I drink a lot. And he's not like 
singing the blues, nor is he being flip about it. He's just going, I, I drink a lot. I don't have anything else to do, so I just drink a lot. And, and I'm sure that my neighbor would love to not have this, this results of this stroke that he has to struggle with. Um, but I also assume that, man, he's been this way since he was in his 20s. Life would be really different if he had stuff that he had to do and if he couldn't just drink when he wanted to. And he'll tell you he's chemically dependent on alcohol. And, and so, you know, and everybody knows him. Everybody likes him. He's a fixture in the neighborhood. It's like norm. And I'm sure he'd say he wants to be healed, but I wonder if he's a little comfortable. And, when, and, and, and so I'm talking about uh, not what we like, but what we're familiar with and what we kind of we kind of get used to it and we don't like it we might even hate it but it's like ah, i'm used to it i know this this is the known and so i've become accustomed to it that's why the 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 the, the big book of aa says it this way in talking about the one of the steps we're talking about today it says this this is from the aa big book willingness is indispensable are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? Or if we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing, which is, uh, you know, there's, there's maybe parts of the stuff that we're stuck in that we really don't want to give up just yet for whatever reason. St. Augustine's a famous... Uh, leader in church history and he was a total wild man womanizer into orgies and all sorts of really out there uh, sexual stuff before he became a Christ follower and he's famous for saying God grant me chastity but not just yet yikes that's honest, that's honest. Um, so I wonder if this guy had gotten comfortable in his brokenness and and, and maybe that's why Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And, and that word for healed is kind of tricky all too because it doesn't just mean do you want your illness taken care of. It also means do you want to be made whole? Do you want me to deal with the whole shebang, the whole nine yards, the whole shooting match? Which brings us to step six. And I think Jesus asked what he asked and it's so resonant with step six. It just, just blows my mind. Look at step six. Here's how to change. Become entirely ready to have God remove all my defects of character. Let that sink in a second. Become entirely ready for God to remove all my defects of character. Notice what it didn't say. It didn't say, became entirely ready for God to fix my problems. Became entirely ready for God to help me stop doing this or start doing that. It says, remove these defects of character. And I don't know about you, but that's pretty heavy-duty stuff. I, and I, I just need to say, when we talk about this this morning, we're talking about something that's really very, very heavily countercultural. Our culture doesn't really talk about defects of character. What do we say? We say, nobody's perfect. I'm only human. I make, my, my, I make mistakes just like everybody else. When's the last time you heard somebody say, I, am, I have defects of character? I mean, just try that. How how are you doing today? Oh, well, I have defects of character. How are you? Uh, man, but see, the de- 
it, this defects of character is, it, it is so important. See, this is something a lot of people don't know about the 12 steps. The 12 steps, y'all, are not, are, not a, are not just about stopping this or putting the kibosh on that. It's about becoming. It's about not just a change in my behavior or my patterns of behavior. It's about a change in me at a super depth level. And I like to think of it this way. I like to think of it as kind of like dandelions. You ever had that thing, you know, where dandelions like be taken over your yard and there's, you know, the yellow flowers are everywhere and then those puffball things are everywhere. And so you get out your lawnmower and you, you, you set it on a real low height and you cut that thing down and there's not a one left, right? And your yard is just green and there's no dandelions and it's awesome and you want, and you, want you know, the, some lawn care service to come let your yard be the poster child of their, you know, and, and, and then you get up the next morning and they're back. I actually looked this up on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> Dandelions can grow over three and a half inches overnight. It is entirely possible to cut down every dandelion flower and the next morning and for them to be back. It's just amazing because you know what happens if you want to get rid of dandelions, what do you got to get rid of? The root. And you're like, weed be gone. What does weed be gone say? Gets to the, you know, it's going to kill the root. So there's even one, is, there's even some, I think it's called root be gone. And see, this is, this is what this is talking about. Because see, yeah, our situation might be more dire than we think. Because not only do I do stuff that's not good for me and hard of my relationships and hard of my health and, and messed up and kind of crazy because I keep doing it over and over again and things don't get better about doing it anyways. It's more, ooh, it's even deeper than that. If I'm going to change, if I'm going to truly change, I need, I, I need change in, in my character. The, the word character in the original language of the New Testament, which is called Koine Greek, the word character means uh, a carving tool, like something you would carve an inscription in rock. And, and so character means what's carved in me. And see, my problem is not just that I got stuff in my life that's messed up and I shouldn't be doing that and it's unhealthy and it's unwise and it's destructive and... Oh. It's, 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 a, it's a, no pun intended, sobering thing. Get it? Um, it's, it's, it's um, thank you, both of you. Um, there's, again, there's stuff carved in me. And one of the classic ways in the 12 steps down through the years that, that we've, uh, we've uh, uh, found to uh, go, okay, so my defects of character, okay, that's a lot to swallow, but... What, what are they? So one, one standard reference is the seven deadly sins. How many of you heard of the list of sins called the seven deadly sins? Okay, now seven deadly sins doesn't mean if you do these, you know, you're worse than somebody else. No, these are just kind of a famous list that's been handed down through the ages through great spiritual leaders in, in, in the Christian tradition that says these tend to be especially life-dominating, you know? It's not like if you have these, you're bad. If you don't, you're good. No, but, but here, here's, the, here's the seven deadly sins. Pride, which doesn't mean feeling good about yourself. It means going... I am constantly thinking of ways to say I'm better than you. Or I'm constantly trying to find ways to think of how you or somebody else is worse than me. It's carved in me. Envy. Envy's not just going, man, I wish I had Alexis. It's like going, oh man, I want Alexis so bad. How can I get Alexis? I gotta change my life around so I can have Alexis. And, any plan, and, and, and those people who have Alexis, I hate them because they can afford Alexis. And I, it's like, ooh, it's serious. Then there's sloth which is not just an animal, <laughs> but sloth is like, if it's hard, no thank you. If it's a hard thing to do, my reaction is, pass. 
That's sloth. Gluttony, you know, that's eating too much typically. Anger isn't just being angry. Anger really is better translated wrath. It means like lashing out at people, either verbally, but it also means lashing out at people in here. I have lashed out at so many people who have no idea. I have told so many off. I've told people off, and you know what? When I do it in here, it goes so well. You know, you're this, and you're that, and you owe me this, and you, how could you have done this to me? And, you know, and I didn't do anything to you, and you're this, and, and, and oh, man, it goes so well. At, but see, I can, I can be very soft-spoken, but inside, I can just be reaming people out with what's going on in here. That's what anger is about. Then there's greed, and greed isn't just about wanting more, it's about saying, hey, man, the key, what you got to trust in, you trust in is, is the stuff you can have and the stuff that you can acquire because your security is in that 401k and my security is in the, in the equity in my house and my security is in, is, is in, you know, however much I've got invested in gold in case it all tanks or whatever. There's greed and then, of course, there's lust and lust is not sexual desire. Lust is when it's like going, what drives me? What's engraved in me is like, I'm always looking life through sexual lenses and it's like looking, always looking at, at him or her and sizing everybody up in, in, in sexual terms and, and just kind of living on sexual fantasy and kind of having a porn shop in my mind. And by the way, I did not just confess to all seven of those. <laughs> I did not confess to all seven of those, but I didn't. And it's interesting, the old TV show Gilligan, how many Gilligan's Island fans in the house? This is a true story. The the seven characters on Gilligan's Island were based on the seven deadly sins. This is not an analogy. This is really true. In fact, watch. This is how easy it is. This is easy. The first couple are easy. Thurston Howe III, the big tycoon rich guy who carries trunks of money on a three-hour tour. Who carries trunks of money on a three-hour tour? Somebody who has the deadly sin of... Greed. All right. Then there's Ginger. You know, she's the sort of Marilyn Monroe-esque, you know, very slinky, seductive, you know. And, 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 and what does she represent? Right. Lust. Then there's Marianne. Well, Marianne's such a sweet little thing. What's her deal? She just wishes she could be like Ginger. She's so... What is she? Envy. Oh, you're all over this. Then there's, then there's uh, Mrs. Howell. And what's she doing? She's always sitting in the shade. Sipping on a, a drink, right? Always got, you know, and she never lifts a finger to do anything, does she? She's a nice enough person, but she's sloth. Right, she's sloth. And then, and then there's the professor. Now, professor's a really, really nice guy. I always like the professor, but think about it. He's smarter than everybody, and he's going to let you know it. I mean, he can make a radio out of a coconut. <laughs> and then they'll go, how do you do that? And they go, well, it's simple when you do this and you do that. And don't you know this, Gilligan? And don't you know this? And he... He's real condescending. Pride. And and, and don't let the skipper fool you. Skipper isn't the one you think. Just because kind of his physical size. Skipper is actually anger. Because no matter how much he loves his little buddy, every single show he whacks him with his hat. Doesn't he? Boom. You know, sometimes Gilligan takes off his hat and lets him whack him. He's always got these outbursts of anger. And he's just, oh, Gilligan. And see, and here's where it's interesting. Gilligan is gluttony. Little skinny, scrawny Gilligan has got gluttony. But watch the show. He can't resist coconut cream pie. And he just eats incredible amounts. And here's, so he's gluttony. And, I, and here's where I will uh, be specific on one of my character defects. I'm a glutton. And I have been my whole life. I have been overeating and eating poorly 
for as long as I can remember. And you go, well, then how come you're not a big guy? I guess it's because I had the good fortune of like having a metabolism of a weasel on crack. <laughs> but honestly, I don't just eat too much. I reward myself with food. If I, if I, if I had a long day at work, then of course I'm going to have three double-decker taco supremes on the way through. That's my reward. I preached hard today. I'm going to go home and have a large piece. God, no, no, no doubt about this, guys. I eat large pizzas by myself. Then I had a physical. Last August, had a physical. Got the blood. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm not, doesn't, I don't look like a glutton, I hope. Uh, doctor calls me in. He goes, you're pre-diabetic. I said, what? You know, I, I weigh 175 pounds and I play basketball and tennis. I, I can't be pre-diabetic. I'm in, I'm in okay shape especially for somebody my age, I, I think. And he's like going, no, you've been eating so many carbs for so many years. This isn't just like what you ate this week. This, you've been eating at least this way for 10 years. And I thought, 27, 28, longer than that, maybe 50 years, who knows. And, uh, and he did, he, he sentenced me to um, low-carb hell. And I've been there since last August. And I know it's church, I shouldn't say that, but it really sucks. (laughs) Gosh, it sucks. It's so bad. And, uh, but there's one thing I hate worse than, 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 than not having to eat carbs. And that'd be the thought of having to give myself daily insulin injections because, man, do I hate needles. And the only thing worse than the thought of a needle is having to stick myself with one every day. And those of y'all have to go through that. You have my admiration and my sympathy. It's probably the only thing that could get me to change the way I eat. But you know what? I can change the way I eat. I've, I've, I've been on it for a while now. My numbers are getting back. But you know what? Inside, I'm still the same. You know? I got a flight out today after this service. I'm like going, what if they serve pizza on this flight? That's, that's carved in me. That's one of the ways I try to make myself okay and make myself feel good is with food that's bad for me. And it's a character thing. That's carved in me. And this is straight out of Scripture. Uh, Darren's mentioned the Scripture before. Look at it from Romans chapter 7. Here it is. Here's why we need step 6 and step 7. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do. But the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And then look at the next verse. It says, wretched man that I am. And don't go, oh, okay, here it is. Another one of those churches getting you to beat yourself up. No, no, wretched means, I looked it up. Wretched means worn out from trying. That's what wretched means. And when Amazing Grace says that saved a wretch like me, it doesn't say saved a loser like me, although it does apply to me in many times. It means someone who's worn out from trying to save himself. Wretched man that I am, worn out. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And the word body there doesn't mean physical body. It means like this self, this thing that I've become from this body of death. And that doesn't mean physical death. It means like, man, this is just a deadly way to go on living. It's deadly physically. It's deadly emotionally. It's deadly relationally. Who who will rescue me? And then it says, I give thanks to God who saves me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Which goes, I can't. Which leads us to step seven. Here it is. Humbly ask God to remove 
all my shortcomings. Real quick, here's what humbly doesn't mean. Humble doesn't mean, oh, I hate myself, I'm a sewer, I'm a sewer, I'm a dirty, rotten sewer. That's not what it means. Humble does not mean to put you down, yourself down. Humble means, well, here's from Bill W., the, one of the co-founders of AA, and I quote, humility is the clear recognition of what and who we really are. Now, there's some good things carved in me, I hope, but there's some stuff carved in me And maybe I carved it, or maybe somebody else did, or maybe it's in my DNA, or maybe it's in the way I was raised. I don't know. But there's stuff carved in me. And that's my character, and it it needs to change. There's, you know, it's a famous story from uh, from AA. Guy gives his testimony, and and, and he tells a story, and he says, I used to be an obnoxious drunk. Now I don't drink anymore, and I'm just obnoxious. And see... God doesn't want any of us to just cut off the top of the dandelion and leave the root there so it's going to pop back up somewhere else, some other way. And in the 12 steps, the 6th and 7th remind us that, look, I, I can change behavior. I don't know how to change my character. How do me change me? I can change my behavior, my actions, my patterns, but I need, I got to, man, and thanks, man, so such a good thing that there's somebody who wants to bring me up out of this. And so this process of going in the seventh step, how do I change? Then, then a regular source of my conscious contact with God becomes, God, change me, change me. So many times in my life, you guys, I've prayed for God to change my circumstances, God to change my you know, person that I'm in a relationship with, or God to change my kids, or God to change my job, or God, I've prayed for God to change the weather. I've prayed for God to change the outcome of football games. I, very rarely have I said to God, God, there's stuff carved in me. Ch- change me. Change me. And I've been praying that way more lately. And it's doing something to me. I can't change me. Karl Barth's one of the great theologians of the 20th century, and he said it this way. He said, to clasp hands in prayer is the beginning of an uprising against the disorder of the world. But see, it's also an uprising against the disorder in me. And I need to understand that prayer is when I can't do something. Now, for something I can do, I shouldn't pray about it instead of doing it. And if I can't do it, I should do it. We're talking about what I can't do. And when it comes to what I can't do, well, A.W. Tozer was a famous uh, Chicago boy, pastor, wrote over 40 books. He put it this way. Please keep in mind with step seven. He said this. Prayer is not the least we can do. It is always the most. When it comes to what's carved in me changing, it's, it's always the most. So there you have it. If you're comfortable, overly familiar, fear of the unknown of changing, it's okay. Ask God to help you be ready to let it go. Help me to not be comfortable in my brokenness. And help me to see into myself these things that are carved in me. That's not who I was meant to be. Change me. Change me. Change me. Back to the end of our story with our, our, our friend by the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5 verse 8. Then Jesus said to him, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Think about it. 
What if he hadn't? It's clear in the story he didn't know who Jesus was. He's just some person saying, get up, take up your mat and walk. I wonder if he just hadn't. Now see, he didn't give himself the power to get up and walk, did he? Jesus did. But Jesus didn't make him get up and walk. Jesus gave him the power to get up and walk. That's how this works. When when I'm saying, God, change me, change my gluttony, change my pride, change my lust, change my sloth, change my anger, change my envy, change this stuff that's carved in me, then there's going to be opportunities that he's going to give me to act on the power he's given me. And I don't know about you, but it blows me away that no matter what, he never gives up on me. If I was him, I would. So here's where we're going to land it. Van, come on up. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Down deep, roots and all. This isn't about doing something different, friends. This is about being something different. This isn't about doing something new. This is about being someone new, becoming someone new through the one who always wants the best for us and who never gives up. And he's our only hope.